When you live to ticket before you kick it, it's pretty important that you power your adventure with the right nutrition. Not just when you decide to take on the biggest physical and mental challenge of your life, like I did retracing the 1928 Tour de France, but also as a part of everyday living. Working overtime on a double shift, running the kids all over town to their sporting events, adding a few extra miles to your weekly hike, or getting sleep deprived with a hectic travel schedule. I'm proud to announce Bucket Nutrition is now an official sponsor of our podcast and just for you, giving a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Go to Amazon.com and use promo code Bucket10, that's Bucket with an IT, 10, for a 10% discount on Bucket Nutritional products. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to help you take it before you kick it. For the inmates locked up at the Utah State Prison, a self-help book considered too provocative and manipulative is banned. Prison officials say it's a matter of security, fearing inmates will learn how to control people with chapter titles like Crush Your Enemy Totally and Discover Each Man's Thumbscrew. Even the author warns his readers, power is endlessly seductive and deceptive in its own way. Do not be frivolous with such a critical matter. But one thing's for sure. When you're introduced to the brilliant mind of Robert Greene through his five international bestsellers, it's an unbelievable ride, and you just don't want to be left behind. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just don't even need is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week, I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators, people who ditch the excuses swerve off the predictable road and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. I'm motivated because if I write about power, for instance, or about mastery or about human nature, I want to get to the bottom of it. I don't want to stay on the surface. I want to understand what's really going on underneath. Robert Greene is a best-selling author and speaker, most known for his groundbreaking and life-changing books on strategy, power, and seduction. He's written five international bestsellers, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law, and Mastery. In his highly anticipated sixth book, The Laws of Human Nature, Green explores the most important subject of all, understanding what drives and motivates people even when they are unconscious of it themselves. Green's books are hailed by everyone from business leaders, historians, to the biggest musicians in the industry, including Jay-Z, Drake, and 50 Cent. Robert Green says, I want to get under your skin and change the way you look at the world, which is exactly what happened to me after I finished his book, The Laws of Human Nature. I just couldn't put it down, and I've been telling everybody about it ever since. It's completely changed the way I see the world. So I just couldn't wait to sit down with a man with the most incredible mind and explore his philosophies even further. Okay, I am with Robert Green. We have made our way into the hot seats for a little conversation in Los Angeles, and it's a little hot up here. Yes, it is. Uh, you did say, I want to get under your skin and change the way you look I at do. the world. I do. And, and that, I thought, was a really kind of cool nefarious. thing to say. Uh-huh. It reminded me of, uh, and I've quoted this a number of times, uh, Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society, where he says, stand up on the chairs, look at the room, same room, but you see it differently. Yeah. Why was it important for you to change the way people saw the world? Or why is it important for you to do that? Well, you know, theoretically, I write self-help books or I'm classified in that genre. 
and I feel like a lot of these books that are out there, and there are millions of them, yeah, they don't really change you in the end. Yeah. They have like a couple of good ideas, a few techniques perhaps, but they don't really go deep into it. And I wanted to like, I don't want to just sort of write on the surface and give you sort of ideas that might, you might want to absorb whatever. I want to go much deeper than that. I want to really help you affect a change, which I think is what people are looking for in a book like this. You know, it's not just sheer entertainment. You don't come to a book like this if you just want it for fun. You want to change something in your life. I do want to say that your book, Laws of Human Nature, is the most impactful nonfiction book that I have read. I, 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 I loved Shackleton's story. That was an yeah, impactful story, story for me. <clears throat> the story of Longitude with John Harrison, the guy who invented the, uh, uh, the clock for, for Captain Cook to keep time at sea. That one had a really profound effect on me because it was a carpenter who came up with the solution. And then along comes your book, and it really has changed the way that I've seen the world. And, yeah. and I completely agree with what you said. I've read a lot of books. I've, um, I've read books that have, you know, Tipping Point and Blink and all of that, but I've never read a book that tells you not only what is happening, but then how to affect change. Yeah, well, so sort of my strategy, because I kind of look at things strategically, it's sort of the theme in all of my books, is how do I penetrate the defenses of the human mind? Because people are defensive. Their natural st stance in life is to say, I'm actually pretty good, I'm fine. I want to hear ideas that just sort of mirror what I already think. So naturally, when you write a book, you're facing people's defenses. So I think very deeply about how I can get underneath them. So I do, I write stories. I've been writing stories for, in all of my books. I lead you in with something that's entertaining, but you know that there's a lesson at the end. Yeah. So that's a seduction strategy. You're much less defensive if you start reading something about narcissism and it starts with a story. Yeah. You're not immediately thinking narcissism, ah. So that's a strategy. And then I just immerse you in all of these ideas and so there's no escape and I'm really directing at you, the reader. Yeah. So you can't wiggle out and go, oh, it's not me. That's, that has nothing to do with me. I make a really, really strong point of saying, no, you are the problem. You are a narcissist. Yeah. You are irrational. Don't try and wiggle out of it. There's no escaping. In fact, coming to terms with this is going to be your salvation. I'm guessing that that path of least resistance, hearing what you want to hear, uh, listening to what you want to listen to is why we gravitate to one n news network over another. Sure. It reinforces what we want to hear. Sure. Yeah, and you're challenging that very notion. Yeah. Um, and so I've, since listening to you, been flicking over to a lot of other news outlets. Oh, really? I want to hear the spin that I they agree. have. I agree. I do that too. And, and uh, I think as I'm becoming older, and your book really speaks to this, is you realize it's way more interesting to understand why someone thinks differently to you to you than it is to just kind of re reinforce what you think you know right. and you really don't know. Right. The brain kind of wants to do shortcuts. We're inundated with so much sensory input that if we took it all in, our brains would collapse. So we do shortcuts. And one of these shortcuts is to always sort of classify what we see according to what we've seen in the past. And we do that with people. So our first instinct when we meet someone new or a stranger is to categorize them, mm. good or bad, friendly or unfriendly, Republican or Democrat, mm. my tribe or not my tribe. 
as opposed to maybe there's something more complex there. Maybe there's something more interesting there. Maybe people aren't just one-dimensional. Maybe people could be likable but also have some dislikable qualities, but that doesn't mean anything bad about them. So I want to drum it into your head. Your first instinct is not to judge people, but to understand them. And that's going to create a revolution in your brain. So when you meet someone or you start a new job, your, your task is to try and figure out who they are, what makes them tick, what it's like to be them, to get inside their mind, their mentality, as opposed to stepping back and bad person, good person, nice, not nice. Right, and who are we as individuals to sort of cast the stone and, you know, and, and to say, oh, this is what it is. I mean, we don't know, we think we know. We see people, they're reflections of our parents, of patterns from our very early childhood, of teachers, of friends, and we're not seeing them for who they are. So it takes actually an effort to get past that kind of natural tendency to put people into these categories. And I tried to make the point in the book that people are more interesting than you think they are. It's like we go to movies because we're fascinated by characters. Like, what is that serial killer? What's going on in his mind? Why is that woman falling in love with this man? We're fascinated by these characters. But we should be putting that same energy to the people that we meet in our everyday life. We seem to be more disconnected than ever. And a lot of those communication skills that we had to have at one point, we don't necessarily need to have Yeah, we, for survival. I mean, look at it. Just um, look at it 100 years ago. You don't have to go back that far, 150 years ago. First of all, you had no internet, you had no television, you had no cinema, in fact. Um, and your physical survival, as you say, depended on relationships, on knowing people, particularly if you didn't live in a big city. But beyond that, your entertainment depended completely on other people. You know, you'd go to people's houses and listen to someone play the piano because you didn't have a, a record player. You would go to parties, you would go to salons and meet weird mixes of people, and you had literary salons, musical salons. You were constantly getting out of your house and going out and meeting people because it was the only form of entertainment you had. There was nothing else. That's what were you so gonna do? Yeah. And so being social is a muscle. We're a social animal. Yeah. But if you spend a lot of time isolated, you would find yourself if you spent three months not seeing a person, first of all, you'd go a little bit crazy. But second of all, you'd find yourself suddenly getting awkward around people. It's a muscle that you develop. And the more you're around people, the easier it is to get into that groove, into kind of figuring out what people are like, into developing that empathy. I tell in the book, this is a book that's trying to help you get more empathetic. It's a muscle that you develop. You're going to be, you're going to find that feeling, that compassionate feeling of getting inside someone's skin the more you interact. And if you're always on your phone, if you're always at home streaming on Netflix, if you're never out there interacting with groups of people, that muscle atrophies. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the world today. And I don't mean that judgmentally, it's happening to me as well, but I think it's dangerous and that's a large part of why I wrote the book. It's a little frightening to me that people are, are retracting that in a, play, in a time where we have more people on earth and more opportunities to do things, people are retreating. The other thing in the past was there was a, a greater mix of generations. People, they used to mix more yeah. because there was a general feeling that older people had experience, they had wisdom, there was something to gain from them. And um, 
And then older people had the feeling that younger people had the energy that I'm kind of missing now. Yeah. And, but now there's an incredible polarization and I don't feel like generations are mixing as much. And so you really, I'm trying to make the point of if you're a young person, like you go out of your way to interact with older people and get inside and see that they didn't grow up in, with smartphones around them, that they had a different world experience. So you can maybe get some of their wisdom and some of their experience from them. And if you're older, interact more with millennials. I was lucky enough to have a lot of time with my grandfather, who was an inventor, gunsmith, mechanic. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about him. I learned so much from observing him. And you talk a lot about that. And to me, this is, this is this whole idea of being curious and looking out into the world and observing everything around you. Right. And what a wonderful uh, gift that is when you, you, you give all these wonderful real life examples when you're talking about Darwin and you talk about how he had this innate ability to just notice things that most of us might walk by. Right. And he would see those intricate details. And it wait, makes you want to hurry up and start living in like, boy, man, I, I've got to start. Oh. It energized me, I guess, is what oh, I'm saying. Oh, nice to hear. And, and, and so I'm hoping that more people will read your book because, again, it isn't just, oh, let me tell you what is happening. It's here's what's happening and here's what you can do to affect change in your own behavior. I think my idea is that we're basically emotional creatures. Yes. That we put too much emphasis on our thinking powers, which I think are greatly overrated, but that we are very emotional at our core and that our emotions govern a lot of our thinking. I mean, so the way to reach people is to hit them in the gut, hit them in the heart, make them feel that it's relevant to their life, that this is how, you know, this is going to make them more excited about things as opposed to a kind of intellectual distanced approach. I'm trying to make this seem like this is going to change me from the inside out and it's going to make me excited. Now you're talking about becoming a better observer. Yeah. I like to look at us as, as an, the humans as animals. And hundreds of thousands of years ago, we, our early ancestors, there was no language. You know, maybe we had grunts or something in the, in the cliche, but there was no language as we know it. So to survive in an extremely hostile world, your survival depended on being able to read the people around mm. you, to read their moods. Um, and we're actually masters, if we only knew that, at reading the moods of people. It's impossible for me to read your thoughts. I can never read your thoughts. It's a myth. But I can easily pick up your moods. Mm. I can pick up your excitement, your boredom, all, a whole, an incredible range. And this is a, na a natural skill that we all have. But it's not an intellectual skill, it's a feeling thing, it's an empathy thing, it's an emotional attachment that you have to people. And so when you're interacting with people, this wants you to go away think, looking at your life differently now after this interview, is when you go in a situation, you're in a, in a restaurant, you're talking to someone, it could be your wife or husband whom you've known for, for many years, stop that internal monologue that's going on in your brain and stop seeing the them is sort of, oh, I've heard that before, oh, it's nothing new to learn. And actually take a moment and try and see what's different about them. Pick up those signals that you normally ignore. Try and read their moods. Try and understand, okay, I've, I'm sensing some impatience from them. They're not really listening to me. Okay, why? Why aren't they listening to me? Maybe they've had a rough day. Maybe what I'm saying is kind of irritating or boring or something. But Ask some questions and don't immediately just sort of shut yourself off from other people.
I quote this a lot, it comes from my father-in-law. He says, you can't receive when you're transmitting. And I love it because it has stopped me and I, I get paid to talk for a living, so yeah. I have to stop myself. But I, I, I learned from both my parents the idea of being fascinated with people. Right. And that requires you to, to listen. That requires you to ask the right questions to get them to talk. Right. And then to learn. And I think that's something we could all be better at. And that listening is not, as you said, just what's coming out of their mouth, but then what's going on in their eyes. People have 20 different ways of saying the word no, depending on the tone of voice, the look in their eye, the way they smiled, little signals in their ear, how they touched their hair. There were all these different nuances to the word no. So it's like a whole language. It's like learning French or something. Imagine if you could understand all the nonverbal patterns and, and things that are being communicated by the people you deal with. Suddenly your understanding would go skyrocket through them. But you have that potential if you just pay attention. So the reason why you're not listening very deeply is because you find your own ideas and your own internal world more interesting than the other person. Your problems are more interesting than their problems. Just we all feel that way. We're, I make the point in the book that we're all born narcissists. Right. So get off your high horse and stop imagining that only other people are narcissists. We are all self-absorbed. We are all more interested in our own problems and our own voice in that little interior monologue. The moment you can switch and say, that other person actually may be more interesting than me. Are there some things that you can suggest people do to become better at that, to be less about what they're thinking and what they want and more about what somebody else is thinking? And So the first step is to actually acknowledge that you do have this self-absorption. And I try to lift the negative connotation with that. And I show where our self-absorption comes from. It comes from a very natural process in early childhood and why some people are damaged and their narcissism is worse, much worse than other people. So I want you to come face to face with the fact that all of us share this quality, that you're not exempt from it. Not even a Gandhi or a Mother Teresa is exempt from it. We all have this ego. We all have this vanity. We are all interested in our own thoughts and ideas. And it comes in as, as the child gets older as a defense mechanism because our parents can't continually give us attention. They have other problems. They have our siblings. They have the, their spouse. And in those moments when we're not getting attention, we develop a self-love, a person inside of us that we can love and appreciate it. And so I show you how this evolves inside of you. So stop denying it. Your denial is a major, major impediment. Okay, once you realize that you have this tendency to be self-absorbed, you will continually catch yourself in it. I catch myself in it all the time. And I wrote the damn book, you know? I don't want to, a lot of times don't want to read a book twice, but this book, I want to go back and read it again uh, because it's dense. I uh, mean, there is so much in there, but it is this, you have this uh, incredible uh, gift for leading uh, the reader on with a story using yeah. real life examples. Yeah. And so you're learning all this history and yeah. you're going, wow, I had no idea that someone like Darwin was struggling at school. And when you, right. when you hear these stories, you realize we, we all think of these, of these people as being like, they just came out of the womb. Right. Mozart came out at four and well, I keep, 
an amazing young man. But even there, just the circumstances that led to that. Yeah, yeah. Darwin was a mediocre student. He he was not. He was. There were many people much more brilliant than him. I think Darwin's IQ was lower than his brother. He had relatively low IQ compared to some other people. You just you said how exhausting it was. You mentioned all these books, and it seems to me that you're one of these people that when you dive in, you go really deep. I'm a creature of habit, like most writers are. I tell people if they want to write, it's not the most exciting life. It's not nearly as exciting as you imagine. It's actually incredibly boring. All writers need routines, and I'm the master of routines. So, you know, I I don't actually, um, I spend a lot of day reading and doing the research, but every day I exercise, and I meditate in the morning as soon as I wake up, and I do my swimming and my bicycling and, and all these things every day. So I get out of my mind and get into my body at least part of the day. But I generally am uh, obsessive and compulsive to an unhe- unhealthy degree, and I have to be very careful about it. But I'm motivated because if I write about power, for instance, or about mastery, or about human nature, I want to get to the bottom of it. I don't want to stay on the surface. I want to understand what's really going on underneath. Your quote, which I love, you said, we're all flawed. We all evolve from the same roots. Many self-help books don't really go deep enough and examine what makes and motivates the human animal, telling people uh, a comfortable version of what they want to hear. I mean, um, the logic of it is is that um, we all evolved from the same source from these early hominids in Africa. We all have the same mother. We all come from the same early tribes of humans. And in the period of hundreds of thousands of years, the human brain that we all have now was created, evolved. And so the qualities that are in that brain, such as the mechanism of comparing. So the human brain operates by comparing information we also do that with people. We compare ourselves to other people. They have more than I do. They have a better spouse than I do. Their children are better than my children are better than theirs. It's continual. This was something that we noticed in early, early humans in hunter-gatherer societies. The phenomenon of envy was extremely powerful and extremely dangerous. And they had to evolve systems such as giving gifts. So the moment you, you receive something that might make other people envious, you had to give it away quickly, otherwise someone might murder you. Mm. So envy is so deeply rooted in us that to imagine that you now in 2019 don't have this emotion, you're exempt from it, you don't compare yourself to other people, is ridiculous. Right. We all have this ingrained in our brains. That really does make you realize that sometimes we see ourselves as so different from others, oh well, I'd never be like that, or I could. Ne- but they're, they're us. They yeah. are us. We are the same. <laughs> yeah. And and when I think when you come to when you come to realize that, it it makes you more accepting of others. I mean, I haven't. I had an exercise. I don't know if people can do it because maybe it's just me, but I was in New York oh, a little over a year ago, after the book was finished, and I just finished the last chapter, and I was walking in the streets, you know hundreds of people walking up and down Fifth Avenue or wherever I was. And I was realizing each one of these persons is going to die. In a hundred years, nobody that I'm seeing will be alive. This person, they're going to die. That person, they're going to die. And if I thought about it enough, it was like it was an incredible kind of 
I can't really even describe the feeling, but it really made me feel wells of compassion for people. So if you look at somebody and you realize... Why? Wh wh why? Because you could see their mortality, you could see their fear, you could see their vulnerability. You could just sense it. You can understand that we all are facing that. All of us have this tremendous fear of death. You know, nobody is exempt from that. Nobody feels comfortable with that feeling, you know. Yeah. Well, that, that speaks to the 18 laws of human nature that you talk about. And, and that death denial is obviously one of those 18. But these are these are really powerful. The, the, the uh, narcissism, which we talked about before, role-playing, compulsive behavior, um, short-sightedness, defensiveness. When you read through this list of the 18 <laughs> and envy, which you talked about, um, it, it, you know, the, I don't know if, if this makes any sense to you, but I found your book strangely depressing and, and, and hugely enlightening all at the same time. I think depressing because, because I, I, I think it was, it's, it's a book that humbles you, but I think, and will humble any reader if they really immerse themselves in it. But at the same time, I felt this vigor for living because I thought almost like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Like I don't have to be anything other than who I am and I'm a human being right and more maybe accepting of my own flaws right because you know what the hell I, I right. I'm just uh I'm human like everybody else I'm prone as to mistakes. as I know yes <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was yeah. it was tremendously uh comforting in a way well that's good to I hear. felt part of uh of a collective I guess less pressure yeah, maybe I had that feeling when I was writing the damn book um, because I was, you know, I have a high, obviously I have an ego, I have a high opinion of myself. And here I had to realize as I'm writing the book, Robert, you're quite a narcissist. You know, I wrote a chapter on aggression. I'd go, damn it, you're a pretty aggressive person. You know, you don't think about you think of yourself as a sweet little lamb. Um, I, I was wondering if we could just talk about four of those sure. themes that the narcissism thing um we we've touched you touched on it um it 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 feels like there's an there's almost this weird attraction that some people have towards narcissists yeah. why are people attracted to narcissists because it appeals to their own kind of thwarted narcissism so um, if you're interested, if you're attracted to a narcissistic leader, I talk a lot in there about the narcissistic leader because it's definitely a phenomenon. There's a kind of thwarted narcissistic desire in yourself. The narcissistic leader is able to act out in ways that normal, none of us would ever dare to do, Yeah. right? And secretly we wish that we could. We wish we could be as selfish and imperious and arrogant and self-serving as them. We're kind of excited about it. We think of them as being more authentic. To follow a narcissistic leader, there has to be a bit of a narcissist in you, mm. right? So They're um, acting out on your behalf. You're living vicariously through them in a way. Yeah. That you talk about the mask that we have when we go out into the world where we put a mask on and we say the things we're meant to say. Then when a leader pulls the mask off and says all the things that we think no one should say, yeah. and then everybody responds to that. Um, and the other thing about the narcissistic leader, yeah, I, I agree with you, but the other thing about them is these are people who as children, we talked about this earlier, didn't develop that kind of self-love that a child normally has to develop 
in order to deal with those moments when parents aren't paying attention to us. A narcissist in some form has a wounded childhood. They had parents who neglected them. They had parents who were overprotective. They were wounded and they never developed that self that they can love. So their only way of satisfying their anxiety is to act out and get attention from other people because they can't get attention from within. They have to get it constantly from other people. So a child who is developing this develops patterns of being dramatic. They know how to get attention. Mm. They know how to act out. They know how to make somebody, you know, notice them. They become very dramatic. And that can be an extremely appealing quality in a leader. We don't realize that it's also very dangerous, but it's sort of the basis of a lot of charisma that these people have. Yeah, I've found that the narcissists, well, like you said, we're all narcissists, but the extreme narcissists who I've met are um, unbelievably charismatic, some of them. Yeah. Uh, And they do have a way of drawing you in, but then they can be very hurtful at the same time because they pull you in and then they can just be very, well, very they, hurtful. They, they see you as uh, the, this great psycho- psychoanalyst Hans Kohut, who developed the whole notion of narcissism as we know it now. He called the, this, the, they see other people as self-objects. Other people are objects that they can use, that they can manipulate. So their interest in you, they appear to be very interested in you, and they are, but their interest in you is how they can use you on your chessboard, mm. how they can use you as a tool. So they're not seeing you for your own problems. They're seeing you and and responding and being sensitive and going, hmm, what can I get out of this person? You'll mistake it for real empathy when actually it is, hmm, what can I get out of you? Then this, uh, the other one is compulsive behavior, determine the strength of of people's character. Well, um, this is an extremely important chapter for you in your life moving forward because you have to, choose people to enter your life. This could be in the personal side, intimate relationships. This can be business partners. This can be friends and colleagues. This can be bosses that you work for. And the human tendency is to judge people on their appearances. Because I said earlier, the brain likes to short, make shortcuts so that we don't have to process too much. So we judge people by their appearances. So a person who seems charming or who seems intelligent, we make the assumption that that's who they are. And boy, do we pay a price for those kind of snap judgments. Because instead of looking at who they really are, their character underneath, we're basing it on the masks that they wear. And people never reveal their flaws or their weaknesses. You know, people who are devilish or aggressive don't wear like horns on their head, or fools don't have a cap and bells. They learn to disguise it from very early on. And you're, you're mistaking the mask for reality, and boy, you're going to pay a price for it. You're going to work for that boss that you thought was charming, and it ends up it's a psychotic boss and you had no idea. Okay, so the main... The important thing is to get out of that habit of judging people on their appearances and look for their character. So take some time. Yeah, and character, the word character comes from the ancient Greek, which means something carved. And it's something deep within people that's so deep that they can't, it creates patterns in their life. It comes from early childhood, it comes from genetics, and they repeat the same patterns over and over throughout their life. They can't help themselves. I have these patterns, you have these patterns. It's inevitable. And they create our character and who we are. Some of these patterns are negative, some of them are positive. I have a compulsive 
pattern that I'd like to get rid of, but I can't. Each time I start a book, I say, Robert, you're going to write a shorter yeah, book. I read that. You're only going to take two years to write this. You're going to ease up, okay? And you're damn Look it, after your health. You're going to look after your health. <laughs> you're going to have a normal life. And I can't do it. I can't. It just, it's, it's, it's neurotic. It's not healthy. <laughs> it's a pattern. And it probably stems from something in my early years, this need to please people in authority figures. It doesn't come from a healthy place. But these patterns can turn into healthy things, and I talk about how you can ch channel them, refocus them. But you want to look. Here's a, here's a saying that I put in there. I know other people have said it. Nobody ever does something once. Mm. If somebody does something like they're late for a meeting, and they go, oh, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't help it. It was traffic. I, I got caught up. And it, it, it wasn't me. I, I'm not like that. You can bet that they'll be late again. It's a pattern. You know, that person, we see it on the news all the time. They have an affair. They ran off with their secretary, this politician, and they're crying. And they go, oh, I don't know what came over. That wasn't me. That's not who I am. Yes, that is who you are. You're revealing more of who you are in that moment. And you, you think it's only once, but you've been doing it again and again. So if you look at people's patterns and you realize they did this in the past, they were ruthless with that prior business partner, they seem like they're not going to be like that again. Oh, yes, they will be because they have this character trait and they're going to repeat the same patterns over and over again also look at how people are in games when they're playing cards playing a friendly game of softball and suddenly you see this kind of uh, this raging yeah. aggressor in there who's got to win i read an, another book about habits and they're saying it takes 22 days to sort of solidify a new habit um just in terms of the patterns that you were talking about before and the things that we do again and again um if you if you own the issue or the challenge, there is hope, right? I mean, we yeah. can we can rewire. If you're continually late, yeah, you can change that, can't you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it is possible. <laughs> I, I talk in the book. Um, each chapter, the end of each chapter, I show you how you can take what seems to be a flaw yeah. and turn it into into a virtue in some way. So, for instance. Um, I talk in the book about the great actress Joan Crawford, who mm. I admire very much. She had an incredibly broken childhood. She had a very abusive father and, and, and a not-so-good stepfather. And she was always looking for male figures in her life to teach her what to do kind of thing. And she would get in all these really bad relationships. And so she sort of became aware of this terrible pattern that she had. And she turned it around so that it would all be about the director. So she would try and now, instead of putting all her attention on men in a personal relationship, she would put it on the director of the film and she would try to understand them. She would almost fall in love with the director and she would channel all that energy and that desire for an older man to take care of her into the director. And, and she became an incredibly sensitive actress to everything that the director was thinking. She could anticipate his thoughts he wanted this kind of performance, I can give it to him. So she made that sensitivity that she had towards older men in a kind of frightened way into something that would work in, in her mm. career. So you can take these flaws. It's very brave. Yeah. Yeah. But it came from a sense of awareness of the dangers that she had. But you can take these, these flaws and these patterns and you can turn them into something positive. Repression? We're talking about the dark side, the shadow. 
Yeah, this is a very important concept. I'm, obviously, I'm getting the shadow from Carl Jung, the great psych psychologist. And the idea is that we all carry a dark side to us. Children come into this world <clears throat> as kind of a complete ball of energy. There's no sense of repression. They have bodily needs and desires. They have emotional needs and desires, and they express them immediately. They're not monitoring them. They're not worried about other people. They feel love. They feel hate towards the same person. They feel their, they see their brother getting something that they don't want. They hate him. They're going to want to get revenge. And the next moment, they're playing with him like he's their best friend. They experience it in a complete range of emotions that are very human. And as we get older and we have to hear our parents and our teachers try and make us socialized creatures, which is important, we have to learn how to behave, we have to be polite, we tamp down all of these qualities that were very natural to us. You know, um, it could be, you could be a young girl who was very adventurous and your parents say, oh, you know, girls aren't supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be something else. You internalize that and you repress this kind of natural quality that you had and you become half of a person, literally half of a person. You have the moon and you have the dark side. And the, the front, what you're seeing of people is the positive image they want to project, the good qualities that make them socialized. But behind them is the dark side of the moon that you're not seeing. It's all of those repressed qualities. Mm. These repressed qualities don't disappear. Nothing in the human unconscious disappears. It's there and it just lays there latent and it comes out in weird behavior. So if you've ever noticed somebody do something that seems a bit inconsistent with who they are, that's their shadow side speaking. If you suddenly erupt in anger at somebody and then the next day you go, damn, what was I so angry about? What came over me? That was your shadow side speaking out. You've been repressing it and it doesn't like to be repressed. It's an energy that it wants- It needs an outlet. It needs an outlet. It'll come out in some way. Some of, that out, some of those outlets will be quite negative and destructive. You need to be aware of it. And you can incorporate this dark shadow side in your everyday personality. You can? You can. You can be more authentic. Steve Jobs wasn't the nicest person to no. be around. He had a dark side. He channeled it into his perfectionism, into creating the most brilliant products around. And so, so everybody has a, has a dark side? Everybody. Mother you know. Teresa had one? Of course. The person that I found most interesting for this is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is a really strange, was a really strange man. He had a very soft, tender, poetic, almost feminine side to him that he was very, he didn't like. He was morbid. He was interested in death. He wrote poetry that was very morbid. He also had another side to him that was the opposite, that was extremely aggressive. He, he liked to box when he was a young man. He liked to beat the crap out of the people that he boxed against. He had these two sides that he couldn't reconcile, that he didn't feel comfortable with. They were part of his shadow. And he learned to kind of accept it, accept who he was and not try and repress it, and use the tenderness to be incredibly empathetic leader and to be, and take that toughness and put it into politics and be very firm and resolute when he had a, an idea or a strategy. He incorporated the edges of his personality and he kind of found a middle way to make it something smoother and more human about him. So how, how should we as individuals come in touch with that dark side? Should we identify it so that we can manage it and use it to maybe do some good things? And if so, then how do we identify it? I call it 
it's the shadow. <clears throat> so I say first, you have to see the shadow. You have to see your shadow. You have to recognize what it is. You know, I had to look at my own shadow. My own shadow is this person who's kind of aggressive, who likes to win. It's also this person that seems really invested in pleasing people and making people want to like me. Okay, I have to first realize that that is my shadow and not run away from it. That's not, that's the hardest part, but you have to do some introspection. You have to think about yourself. And I give you some ideas about where you'll notice the shadow creeping in, those moments when you get angry or frustrated and you explode or something that happens to you under stress or something that you do in your life that to this day you've never quite understood why you did that. Look back on those. Those will be glimpses into this shadow. The second thing I say is you have to embrace the shadow. You have to stop hating it and trying to hide it from people. You have to embrace this, you have to accept it, and you actually have to love it. It's a child within you. It's a child that had pain, that did not want to give up these qualities that felt natural to it, and that was forced to become a good little angel for mommy and daddy and teacher. Mm. It's a painful thing, and you must kind of accept that and kind of embrace it and sort of, you know, love that part of yourself. Repression is just not good i mean let let it go well it's and, and just how you let it go yeah how you let it go yeah yeah that's and 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 you see that you're so right if you're a painter or a musician you can pour it all out into your right. music and your lyrics and your performance right uh, but in your case you were able to put that into a book yeah and and do you feel better for it, Robert? <laughs> I do. I think I got it out. <laughs> you got it you out. Know, I mean, um, my wife knows this because we've been together for, before I wrote the books for many years. Was that, you know, I was kind of frustrated. I was 36 years old. I knew I could write. I hadn't made any success. I was probably, there was some bitterness there. I have to be honest. Some anger and frustration. And envy. The, envy, for sure envy. And I got it out. And I got attention and I got success and I channeled it into something and it probably saved me. You've done pretty well for yourself, Robert. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I take that. I, 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 you no, trust me. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down with somebody who's got, what is it, six international bestsellers now or something? I mean, you've, yeah. you've sold a few books. I've sold a few books. You've yeah. poured your heart and soul into those books. And yeah. Sold a few books. Um, you, you're talking about the the, the last uh, theme I wanted to talk about was the, the uh, aggression, and that's something um, that manifests itself in interesting ways. The uh, social justice warrior. So a social justice warrior has a lot of aggressive energy, right? And they put it out on the internet, and they're extremely, they're outraged by everything, or they can be outraged by the smallest thing. There's a cause they've identified their ego with, and if they sense the slightest violation of this cause and these standards and these values, they erupt, they, just they go, go crazy. Yeah. And, they be, and the irony of it is, is that they're all about justice and good causes, but they're the meanest bastards when it comes to attacking people who have this different opinion of them. And they're not aware of the kind of weird hypocrisy going on. Because uh, when you're coming from that bias, it's almost impossible to see another side. You're so invested with this cause that any slight attack on it is attacking you and you take it personally and you're triggered, okay? That aggressive energy can be turned around because there are causes worth falling, 
of fighting for. There is a lot of injustice in this world. There are a lot of terrible, terrible people out there. The world is, you know, income inequality. There's a lot of things that are worth fighting against, right? But if you turn that around and it's not about you, but it's about the cause, and your thinking is, how could I actually stop global warming instead of just getting on the internet and yelling at people? All right, I have to be strategic and pragmatic. You pour your energy outward into a project, into an idea, instead of inward into your own ego and vanity and how you feel about yourself and how people are attacking you. It's not about you. It's about saving the world. It's about helping other people. That's a way to channel your aggressive energy and put it into something productive into some, into, as opposed to something destructive. Um, you said uh, our lives depend on our relationships with people, and you said... Um, this goes back to what you were talking about before with uh, without the billions of people who created language before you, without education, without your parents, without your teachers, we re we really would not exist the way we are. And I, I, that really had an impact on me because I, I don't know if I'd really ever stop to think about the life that we live because of the lives that have been lived before. Mm-hmm. Like you just take it for granted that you can have a conversation with someone, yeah. that you have this depth of knowledge, that you know the theory of relativity, <laughs> that you understand the pie chart. You know, I mean, so many things that made me think, wow, yeah, it took all those billions of people that have lived before right. for us to walk around with this knowledge. It knocks you down a few pegs. Makes you it knocked little... me down a lot of pegs. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, you know, anybody who has, there's a chapter, I don't know if that's referring to the chapter on grandiosity or not, but, um, you know, people, when we have some success in life, the tendency is, success, I talk about, can be very dangerous. Because normally, and studies have borne this out, normally we walk around with an elevated self-opinion. So let's say, the ground, our feet are on the ground, and that's who we are as a human being. Normally we walk around with our feet two feet off the ground. We have a slightly elevated opinion of ourselves. We think that we're really more intelligent than we actually are. We feel like we're more, we're better, more moral than we actually are. On, but not too much of a discrepancy, just a little bit. And it's enough to make us feel good about ourselves so we can get, we can function in life. And it's not unhealthy. But when success happens, that two feet suddenly starts becoming three, four, five, a hundred, up into the clouds. So you start elevating and you start thinking, wow, I'm a god. I'm a genius. The next thing I do is just going to be brilliant because so many people loved my album. So many people bought my book. They elected me into this position. I can do this. I'm a businessman. I could become president of the United States. I could be a great president. Why not? I have the golden touch, right? And so you start attributing your success to just you and what you've done, as opposed to the factor of luck. You were elected president because of certain circumstances that were there that made it very easy for you to become president. And you're ignoring all of these other little, you know, coincidences and circumstances that went into that. You're ignoring the fact that you had hundreds of people helping you along the way that were contributing to your success. You probably stole some of their ideas. You're ignoring the fact that you had teachers and parents and a whole history of people who educated you that, are, you know, you're not 
you're not solely responsible for anything like that. You're ignoring the fact that if things went just a little bit differently, you probably wouldn't have that had that success. And so you, you get up higher and higher and you do something foolish, you go too far, and then you fall back down like Icarus. So being aware of the fact that in any success in life, there is a whole big mountain of people underneath you who led to that, gave you that chance, and circumstances, and luck, will kind of make you more humble. So that it, on your next project, the next book that you write, you don't assume that you're going to be successful. You have to work just as hard as you did before. You have to, you know, for me, if I'm starting a new book, I don't rest. You know, on my, the only way this is going to work is if I get unhealthy again. Exactly. <laughs> Five more years of destroying my health. You set, this, you set the bar so high in the beginning. Now it's like anything uh, less than that, you know you're not giving uh, it everything, God, right? Yeah. Um, it's that, depressing. That must be very depressing. <laughs> I had a number one you know, selling book, New York one selling book. And yeah. uh, I, I, uh, I think um, this definition of your book, 48 Laws of Power, you say it's a manual for anyone interested in gaining observing and defending against ultimate control. That is a book that was so powerful, in essence, that they didn't want it read in prison. Part two will continue with Robert Greene talking about his controversial book, The 48 Laws of Power, and my new favorite, Mastery. You don't want to miss my follow-up with this brilliant writer as we dig even deeper into what makes us tick as human beings. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us. And follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an IT, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Kogan. Today's podcast proudly brought to you by Bucket Nutrition. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to power your adventure. Don't forget to go to Amazon.com, search for Bucket Nutrition, And use promo code BUCKET10, that's bucket with an IT, and you'll get a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Just wait until you try the Bucket Booster with Manuka Honey.